But we're going to continue in the God of Miracles series, specifically in John 9. So if you do have your Bibles, I would ask you to open up the scripture to John 9. However, we're going to be doing, from what I assume, um, something a little bit different in the way that we engage the word today. So um, as we look at scripture, one of the ways that the scriptures talk about the scriptures is that we are to feed on God's word. Okay, we are to feed on God's word. Um, feeding on God's word both nourishes us spiritually. Um, sometimes we enjoy feeding on God's word, right? Sometimes we're really comforted. Sometimes um, we feel really encouraged. But other times we feed on God's word and we don't really like it. Like we don't like the taste it has in our mouth. We don't like, but it's always healthy. And so there's always these times where we're called to feed on God's word to nourish us. Um, but it's not only just an encouragement, it's also challenging us. And so, um, as I was thinking about this over the past couple of years, I was thinking about the different ways that we can feed on God's word. Um, and I think there's three primary ways in scripture that we're supposed to feed on God's word. The first way is that we're supposed to study it, right? Like this, this text, this Bible, um, um, j spoiler alert, wasn't written in English. You know, this is an ancient text. This was, the, the word of God is, is uh, for us but it wasn't specifically in the context written to us. So we need to study and figure out what was going on at that time period. What is the contextual background stuff? What is some stuff that we don't quite understand? How can we figure out the mystery of the text a little bit? And so we want to study it. We want to hear what Jesus is saying, who he's saying it to, why maybe he's saying it. Another way we engage God's word and feed on it is that we pray it. Right? So God's word isn't just this textbook kind of thing that we have and we just study. It's also something that affects us right where we are here and now. And so we can feed on God's word by praying God's word. And so we're going to start with studying God's word. And then we're at the end of the service today, um, we're going to uh, pray God's word. I've asked Mike Gensler and also Tim Deering to pray out of John 9 and lead us in prayer out of John 9. And then in between there, we're going to do one other kind of feeding on God's word. We're going to do the reading of God's word, which might be like, well, no kidding, you should read God's word. But if we were to be honest with each other, the corporate reading of God's word is sometimes the least exciting in a corporate setting. So we're just going to read the Bible together. I can do that at home, right? And yet there's something really important that in our corporate worship gathering that we're giving credence to a longer portion of the scripture than just taking bits and pieces and chunks because we get to hear the story in a more complete and full way. We get to hear how it flows in and out. And so we're going to be studying God's word, reading God's word, and then praying God's word today. Does that make sense? And that all of those, all three of those things are a feeding on his word. And so we're going to be in John 9 for this. Um, and this is the God of vision, the Gospel of John uh, chapter 9. One way to think about this feeding paradigm is, uh, so today we're going to go on a hike. We're going to start at the base, and then we're going to hike up to the top, to the vista, to where we can overlook everything. And we're going to stop at these little places, five places in particular. And they're not really connected, but they're all kind of connected. And we're going to think about sin and sight. We're going to think about the Pool of Siloam and being sent. We're going to think about spit and mud. We're going to think about the Sabbath. Uh, we're going to think about what does it mean that Jesus uses the term Son of Man. And all of those things, as we stop there and we look at them a little bit, we might not quite get the wholeness of what's going on, but then when we get to the top of the mountain, we're going to get to the vista point, and we're going to overlook everything that we just walked through, and we're going to hear it as a whole. 
and we're going to see the beauty of it. So this is a place in Washington State. My wife and I lived in Washington State for three years. This is called Diablo Lake, and this is one of my favorite uh, overlooks in Washington State. Um, I, I've been here probably at least half a dozen times or so. And this is a great vista point where you can see the beauty and the longevity and kind of the breadth of everything. But there's also something um, when you've gone and you've explored different parts. Like over here, there's actually an abandoned town that's over there that's really cool to kind of check out and, and, and see. There's a boat dock down here that's interesting to explore. Right in the middle here, there's the Diablo Dam. But when you look at it as a whole, you don't necessarily see all those things. And yet, because I've walked these different places and explored these different places, when I stand at this vista point, not only can I see the breadth of the beauty of everything, but I also know some of these little details, these little nook and crannies that are hidden in here. And this is kind of the paradigm for the, the word today. That we're going to stand, we're going to read all of John 9, it's a whole chapter, but before that, we're going to look at these little nooks and crannies so that when we get to this vista point, we can be thinking about, oh, I see how this flows into this and this flows into here. That doesn't mean we're going to know everything about John 9, but we're going to have uh, a broader uh, experience of John 9 today. So does all of that make sense? Am I, did, I, did I lose anybody on that? So again, we're going to start down here. We're going to kind of make our way up the mountain. We're going to be up there looking at the vista, do the reading, and then we're going to reflect on the things that we heard and the things that we saw. Everybody ready? Okay. So John 9, let's, let's first start with the idea of sin and sight. So in John 9, let me give you the, the summary of, of John 9 first in uh, the social media realm. You know, the 144 characters, there's just two little sentences, three little sentences about what John 9 is about on a very basic level. Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath with spit and mud. Religious leaders debate what happened and how it could happen. And then the former blind man sees more than just the physical. So Jesus heals a blind man on the Sabbath with spit and mud. Religious leaders debate what happened and how it could have happened. And the former blind man sees more than just the physical. So sin and sight play a huge part in uh, John chapter 9. Both the beginning and the end of this, of this discourse that actually extends into chapter 10, um, begin with the idea of sin and sight. So the disciples are walking, Jesus is walking with the disciples, and they see a blind man, and the disciples ask um, Jesus, what is going on with this blind man? Who sinned? Did this guy sin that he's blind, or did his parents sin that he's blind? And so there's this notion that there's something wrong with him, he's blind, so he must have done something wrong, or his parents must have done something wrong, in order for this a bad thing, this uh, deforming of physicality to have happened. And so there's this assumption here that something is wrong with him or with his parents because of sin. And yet, what ends up happening is that Jesus says it's not because of sin or whether it's of this man or the parents' sin. This person is actually blind. Why? Because w God's work is going to be displayed in him. Because God's work is going to be displayed him. And that makes us think, or that makes me think, when I see something that is broken, am I always going to the negative end of things? Am I always like, oh, I see this thing in Jen, and this thing is broken in Jen, so there must be something in there that, you know, that she definitely did something wrong to have this happen. 
Or is there something that's more complex about the world? Is there something that's more complex about our lives and the way God interacts with us? No doubt, we know right off the bat that sin affects and deforms things, right? We know that. We know that um, our own stuff affects not only ourselves, but also our kids, also our community, and all of that. But that's not just the reason that stuff can be happening. And so we almost need to broaden our perspective on what might be going on in somebody's life or in a community's life even. Could it actually be that God wants to show a miracle in this spot? Could it be that God actually wants to show his glory in this spot and that this man is not blind because of sin, but this man is blind because the works of God are going to come forth from him? And so John 9 starts with sin and sight. John 9 also ends with sin and sight except it's in a completely different way. While there's sin inside at the end of John, it's more the spiritual stuff that's going on because the blind man is healed. The blind man can see, and yet the Pharisees can't get their heads around this. They're like, how could somebody in this way heal a blind man? He probably wasn't even blind to begin with. And there's no way that this Jesus guy could do it because he's probably a sinner because why? Because he healed somebody on the Sabbath, and you're not allowed to do that, and we'll get to why that is. And, and they didn't really like the way Jesus was using his authority and using his love and using the, the, the power of the spirit and the truth that he was bringing into it. And so at the beginning of the chapter, we have this idea of physical sight that is, that is lost. But at the end of the chapter, um, Jesus says some really interesting things. If you want to look in your, in your um, text at uh, verse 40 and 41, So some of the Pharisees near him, so Jesus comes and he says, you know, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Like, what is is that about? And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, "Are, are we also blind? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see and your sin remains. So in your translation, it might say guilt in there. But depending if you have the ESV like me, if you look at the little footnote, the Greek actually says sin. And so I I would prefer for us to translate that word uh, sin right now. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. And I think Jesus is doing this really interesting reversal of sight and sin with Genesis 3. You have to remember that these are religious leaders that know their Bible, that know their Torah, that know their Genesis story. And I think he's kind of hinting here um, that the stuff that's going on in the garden is still going on right now with all of us, right? Because what happened when Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit? What happened? What's the next line in this story? What happened to them? Their eyes were both opened. And yet, was that a good their eyes were both opened? And what was the tree that they ate from in order for that to happen? Knowledge of good and evil. And this idea of knowledge is scattered through, in the middle of these two sin and sight things, this idea of knowledge is scattered through, what do we know, what don't we know? We used to know this, but now this other thing happens, and you say you know what happened, but we don't know what happened, so how can we know what really happened? And so it, it, it says it like this, if, if we look at the word know just in this, in this passage, We know, we do not know, nor do we know, we know, I do not know, one thing I do know, we know, we do not know, you do not know, we know. (laughs) 
So there's a lot of knowing and not knowing going on in between this physical blindness and the spiritual blindness. And so the idea of what we know, what we think we know, the way God changes what we know, plays into it also. And are we going to be willing to have eyes that see in the way that they're supposed to see? Or are we going to be blinded and our eyes be opened, what are you talking about, Jesus, and not be able to see because of sin? That's our first camp spot, second camp spot, spit and mud. So I was going to, this morning, have a little thing of dirt up here, and I was going to spit into it and make stuff. Last night, I practiced this, and it takes a lot of spit to do that. (laughs) So I'm not going to do that. And I was kind of nervous about it because I didn't want to be, like, extravagant. But then I was just trying to give a visual. If Jesus is there on the ground spitting in the mud, and if you see me spitting, and I'm doing it for like five minutes, (laughs) trying to get enough spit out of my mouth to get some kind of a, to get mud, to make cake, the clay, to put on somebody's eyes, what what would you think? Honestly, if I did that, what would you think? You can say whatever you want. What would you say? Gross? Kind of offensive? Try too hard? (laughs) We're in the church. We don't ever try too hard in church. (laughs) Right. And yet think about that if you were there watching Jesus do that, whether you're a disciple or a Pharisee, or if you're a blind man hearing these sounds happening. I don't specifically know what Jesus was doing with that. I would like to offer three possibilities based off of um, some cultural contexts, I'm not saying this is why he did it. And I don't think we need to know why he did it. But sometimes we can just uh, be at peace to be like, that was weird, that was odd, you're Jesus, you do things a lot that we don't understand. First one, Jesus was displaying his authority over Levitical laws, possibility. So again, we have to remember who's in, we have disciples, we have uh, rabbis, we have all of these people. Uh, Leviticus talks about in certain sections about how if a ritually unclean person, so if I am ritually unclean and I spit on Tim, I make him unclean. I make him unclean. The uncleanliness is transferred from me to him, and now Tim is unclean. And yet, what happens when Jesus uses this spit, this unclean stuff, and who a lot of people, specifically the Pharisees, felt like Jesus was unclean, yet it has the opposite effect, right? that it actually makes, it heals him. It makes him clean. The the uncleanliness of his blindness is actually taken away. So is Jesus, by using spit, kind of trying to um, show his authority over the Levitical laws? Same thing with leprosy. If you think about the story of the healing of the leper, where you can't touch a leper because you'll become unclean, and yet Jesus touches the leper, and it's like his wholeness transfers to the leper, and makes him clean. And so is there kind of a similar thing going on here with spit? With spit. That's one possibility. Another possibility, Jesus was asserting his firstborn status as God's son. So um, there would have been rabbis there. Some of them would have been thinking about Leviticus. Other people would have been thinking about uh, the Talmud, which was a Jewish book of ceremonial laws and commentary kind of and rituals, and thoughts, and all kinds of other stuff that would have been normal to Jesus' day. So if we would take a book here that, like, everybody's read, and we kind of have the similar knowledge, 
to some degree, that's kind of what the Talmud was, where that there were these other things that wasn't scripture, but it was pretty authoritative in forming and understanding who God was. And so one of the things it says in the Talmud was that the saliva of the firstborn of a father heals. And it specifically heals, guess what, diseases of the eye. So was Jesus trying to assert, as he's been trying to do, that him and the Father are one, and he's from the Father, and he's in some weird way, in some good spiritual way, that he was um, uh, the firstborn of all creation kind of a thing? What was he doing there? Maybe it was that. Third thing, possibility. Jesus was alluding to his divinity. So as John puts it at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God right, in the beginning. And so um, an early church father, Irenaeus, linked John 9 to the miracle of creation, specifically of uh, uh, Adam and Eve. Now, from a, from a thinking through it level, though, there's been a lot of slack on that because the words don't um, line up. Dust and clay aren't the same words. And so while there's some kind of similar verbiage there and linguistic uh, uh, connection, it's, it, it's not a one-for-one thing. However, the Greek word that is used here, uh, pelos, for the mud, is used other places in the Old Testament Greek, which is probably what Jesus would have been reading and the disciples would have been reading, not just the Hebrew. The Old Testament Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And the word there, pelos, is used a lot when it talks about God as the potter. God as the one who forms us. God as the one who shapes us. So is God, is, sorry, is Jesus kind of linking himself to the creating and forming acts of Yahweh and saying that, you know, just as my father is at work, I'm also at work. And is that kind of what he's doing with the spit and mud, making this mud, forming it and putting it on his eyes? That's another possibility. Like I said, I don't know. Those are some possibilities to think about, though. What is cool in this is that the fact that the text brings out the word anoint twice that Jesus anointed his eyes with this spit and mud. And we remember in the Gospel of Luke, you know, Jesus comes to the synagogue, he gets to the temple, he opens up the scroll, he reads from the scroll in Isaiah, and he reads the part of the the servant. And what, do we remember what the, the words are there? Anybody? The beginning part of it? Do you know what place I'm talking about? So we remember the reading of Jesus, and that he has been anointed to preach the gospel, to heal the broken, and to recover the sight of the blind. And so there's this connection between Jesus anointing the eyes of the blind man, but also the fact that he is the anointed one. And so Jesus uses his anointing in order to anoint others for healing and wholeness, which is really cool because I think a lot of us here can testify to that. How God's grace, whether in small ways or in huge ways, has come to heal us, has come to open our eyes, has come to hear the, his words have come to us to hear the good news also. So there's this interplay between being anointed and also anointing others. And Jesus uses his power to anoint and provide anointing for others. That's the second base camp. Next, the pool of Siloam and sent. Pool of Siloam and sent. This whole discourse, mm, excuse me, I have a sore throat. This, this whole discourse um, takes place probably during the festival of the tabernacles. 
And so there's three major festivals, one of them being the Festival of the Tabernacles, when this is happening. So there would have been this big celebration, there would have been all of these rituals that back in the day the people would have been participating in, that they would have seen certain things and they would have linked that to certain things. This means this kind of theological context, this means this kind of spiritual context, this physical thing represents this in the spiritual realm, all of that. And it's during this time that Jesus tells the man that he just... Uh, he spit, made the mud, put it on his eyes, and he says to the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I want you specifically to wash in this pool, which is kind of, which is kind of mean because he's still blind. And the pool is probably like, you know, a quarter mile away. And so he's like, hey, I put this mud and this goop on your face, and now I want you to travel half a mile and go wash there as the man's feeling his way to that place. So it's kind of like a weird thing that he said to go to somewhere else to do it. And yet, what could that m- possibly be saying about how Jesus calls us? Where there's this idea that uh, Jesus has anointed us, Jesus has provided healing for us, Jesus has shown up in our lives, but there is still the fact that we need to respond to that, that we need to go. There's almost this idea of that we can't just be recipients of grace, which we absolutely need, but we're also participants in grace. That we don't just sit here on a Sunday morning and we receive the goodness of the Lord. But God is also telling us to go. He's telling us to get up. I know you think you're blind. Go to this place, step out in faith, wash in the pool of Siloam, and you will be healed. So there's not only the receptivity of grace that God is giving to the blind man, but also this idea that he is calling him to step out in faith and to go. So one of the readings um, that would have been known at the Festival of Tabernacles would have been from Zechariah. And so the priests um, during the festival, which was, I think, seven-day festival, would take a, um, would take, this isn't a, would take some kind of uh, unit to get water. They would go to the pool. They would dip it in the pool, and this would be sacred water. And they would walk it through the city, singing praises to God, thanking God for who he was. Because it was also a harvest festival, so the idea of water was very important for the previous, for the harvest that was coming. And then they would stand either at the synagogue or at the Temple Mount, and they would pour it out as an offering. They would pour out the water as some kind of a sacrifice, a ritual sacrifice, to say that, God, you have provided these things, but we're also going to give them back to you because we know of your power. And one of the readings that would have been taken place at that time was from Zechariah. The end of Zechariah talks about the Messiah coming back, about all things being made new. But it also talks about the fact that in those days, when the future Messiah would come, on that day living waters shall flow out, being sent out from Jerusalem both east and west, both in summer and in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. The Lord will be one as his name is one. And that's where this water came from that Jesus told the blind man to go and wash. It was also the place where Jewish converts were baptized. And so you think about this water in baptism, you're thinking about the, the water flowing out from the temple, and he's telling this man to go and wash there, to go and wash there. There's this other interesting thing, though, with scent that I think we can connect with, is the fact that not only did Jesus send him to the pool, which means sent. Salome means sent, as it says in the text. But there's also the idea that in the midst of all of this, there's this other kind of sending on the reverse end. That at the end of the chapter in John 9, 
the blind man is sent again, but it's not in a good way. He's actually casted out. He's actually sent away from the synagogue, from the church, from the place where he was supposed to uh, have his main community. And I think that um, as followers of Christ, we can feel this and understand this in the way of that when we follow Jesus, uh, when we go where he says that we are to go, there's often times where we're actually ousted out of certain groups. There's actually times where, and it might not be like a physical, like we're kicked out, but it's where like, oh, well, that person's a little bit too um, spiritual. That person's trying to follow Jesus like he's real. And, or some kind of, not some kind of concept. And so it's really interesting, especially uh, post-resurrection, and Tim, I hope I'm not taking anything from Easter next, next week. Sorry. Um, but Jesus is raised from the dead. He comes in, what? Or am I? I'm, I'm taking this, am I? Jesus is raised from the dead. His disciples are like, what's going on? Jesus appears in a locked room. How does Jesus prove it's him? What's one of the ways Jesus proves that he's him? It's him. So you do need to read the Bible more here at Parker Ford. His wounds. His wounds. Right? But then what does he say right after? Right after he sends his wounds. Am I seriously taking stuff from next? Okay, cool. So he shows the disciples his, wound, his, his wounds, and then in John 20, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The smallest word in there is probably the biggest in my mind, the word as. Because what is he showing the disciples as he's saying, as the Father has sent me? His wounds. And so there's this idea that I'm sending you and you're going to, and peace, peace be with you, wholeness be with you, but that in being sent out to some degree as my disciple, you're also going to get wounded. You're also going to experience a ton of pain and a ton of suffering as you try to speak truth and love those around you. That that's how this works. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you, as he's showing them his wounds. So there's this great thing about, yeah, we want to be sent. We want to be important to the kingdom of God and to Parker Ford and Cornerstone and to Netzer and to all of these things. And we want to get on there and we want to do it. But what if that specifically means and involves pain? Are we, are we quick to sign up for that then? What if it doesn't go the way we think it's going to go? But that's what Jesus has called us to do. Next camp, Sabbath. There's no weirdness to that. I just like the way it looked. <clears throat> so all of this happens on the Sabbath, uh, which is really what sets uh, the Pharisees off. One of the cool things about the Sabbath is that God says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but God in the scripture does not define what work is, which is really cool. Why? Because it gives us this rhythm and the structure, but it also gives us this freedom where it's not like However, because we're human and the Pharisees were human, they made up additional laws, 39 of them in fact. One of those laws was that you're not allowed to knead. Specifically, knead as in uh, not N-E-E-D, but like, you know, like bread. Specifically, you're not allowed to combine uh, a solid and a liquid. What did 
Jesus do to make the mud? He combined the solid and the liquid. Right. So this is, if you're kind of like, well, why are the Pharisees freaking out about him healing and stuff? Because of this. And let me give some, uh, uh, quickly, some historical background on, on why, though. Because I want to have some sympathy or empathy, one of the two, with the Pharisees. And I know, like, the Pharisees are the bad guys, and they're definitely not right in here. But I also don't want us to be so against the Pharisees that we end up being like the Pharisees because we're so against them. You know? And that happens where we react so much to something else that we actually become like the thing that we hate, okay? So um, why the Pharisees, in my opinion, were the good guys coming out of the exile. Because what happened is that the exile, the whole population, 98% of the population of Jerusalem was taken into the exile, was taken into Babylon, Assyria, every place else because of their sin, because of not listening to God's commands, because of not keeping the Sabbath, primarily because of not worshiping God. They worshiped other gods and demons and entities. So now Jerusalem or the people of God are coming back to Jerusalem. This is about 400 years later. But the Pharisees want to care for the community and they want to make sure this doesn't happen again. So in overreaction, what would happen if you came from a place where you were exiled, where you were, there was a ton of killing, uh, raping, everything that happened, destruction upon destruction because of the loose morals of the community. You don't want that to happen again. So what do you do? You set up legalism. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying I get that. Because I don't want this thing to happen and I see that this thing happened in part because of this. And so in my mind, I want to try to take this and do the opposite of that so it doesn't happen again to my family, to myself, and to my people. And one of the things that was specifically in Jeremiah and in Second Chronicles is that the, the number of years that uh, Jerusalem was outside of um, uh, the area was how many years? Does anybody remember how many years the uh, exile was? 70 years. And the reason, Second Chronicles, the end of that, part of the reason is, is that the people did not take the appropriate Sabbath for all of the years leading up to that, and that the land was going to get its Sabbath one way or another. And so it's, however, the, the math works, where for the, those many years, that's how many years um, of Sabbath rest that the land was going to get by the people of God being ousted out. And so the Pharisees here, even though they are completely overreacting, like, you can't do this, there's also a little bit of sympathy and empathy there in my, in my place for them. Not saying they're right, but do you understand how, like, we do that too, where we overreact because we want to provide boundaries and protection and we want all of this to be okay because we don't want the stuff that our ancestors had to deal with and all that horribleness to, to come to us or to our children. But again, the one main thing is always intimacy with the Lord, is intimacy with Yahweh, is connection and worship of the one true God. And no kind of, uh, the commands of the Lord we need to listen to, the rules of the Lord are good, they revive the soul. But if we lose the heart of it, we're in no better of a place. So it's the same thing. The, 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 the Pharisees had these rules and had all this structure set up, but again, they were missing the heart of it, so much so because they were thinking about how they would line out God's commands, how they would line out all of this. And so you can see why the Sabbath a little bit was so important in the midst of this discussion, hopefully. hopefully. And one more thing. 
Jesus is called a couple different things in this passage. He's called um, a rabbi. Jesus is called a prophet by the blind man. And then he's also called a sinner, or the blind man even questions if he is a sinner. If he is a sinner, I do not know. But then at the end, after he is, the blind man is kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus hears that he's kicked out, and he comes back, and he finds the man. And again, at the end of the chapter 9, if you want to look in your text, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to, to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. But the question is, what does this phrase mean? What does the phrase son of man actually mean in the context? So with the the Hebrew context, uh, son of man is used just as a descriptor. So Ezekiel uses son of man over and over to talk about himself as the prophet of God, just the human prophet of God. So son of man could simply be just a generic descriptor that I am a son of man, that I am a human being. Christina is a son of man. She is a human being. You're not, you're not alien. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Um, But Jesus doesn't really use it like this. He uses it as a title. And so what would have been floating around in this phrase, son of man, during Jesus' time? Because it doesn't really make sense if he's just saying, I'm a man, I'm a human being. Okay? So the only other um, significant place that son of man happens is in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. Let me read to you where it's used. It's in chapter 7. Let me give you a little bit of back backstory. So this is a vision that Daniel's having. As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair and his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And if you jump down a couple verses, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is Jesus, as he's using this phrase, son of man, he's not using it just as some kind of generic thing. He's actually using it as a title that this idea, this apocalyptic figure that is floating around, especially now that we're under Roman occupation, we're looking for a Messiah, we're looking for somebody to get us out of here. This son of man is me. You are seeing him. You are hearing him. I am the son of man. And so he's kind of coming forth outright with kind of his divine humanity, his divinity that's right there. And he's saying, I am this man that is going to bring this wholeness and this dominion, even though it's going to look completely different. It's going to look, right, sight, completely different than what you thought. Than what you thought. So son of man from Daniel, Daniel 4. Ah, 7, excuse me. So with that being said, are you ready to read? Nice. So we are going to so slap your faces a little bit if, you're, if, I'm, if I'm boring you. Okay, because we're going to read all of John 9 now. Um, 
did you get my did you get my text? Yeah. Did you get my email? Yes. Okay, that's what I need. Okay. With change, with change, yeah, but this also, when you read it, can you change this here to, yeah, good, good. Okay, so let me review what we just did. So we stopped at a couple different points going up the mountain to hear about these different things. Some of them probably felt like, what are you talking about? Because they weren't in a flow, but we have a little bit of knowledge of the landscape of those different areas. And now Christina and I are going to read all of John chapter 9 to hear the flow of it, to look at it from the vista point. And then after that, uh, we're going to enter into some corporate prayer. So is everybody ready? So if you want to follow along, feel free. I, what what I, I, I ask of you to do as much as possible is try to imagine, even if you're looking at the text. Try to imagine it. I love visuals and I love media. The one thing about having so much visuals in media, I, I use it all the time, is that it, 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 uh, it kind of makes us a little bit sloppy in our imagination because everything's already there. We don't need to actually imagine anything more because we see it. It's a passive working out of the imagination rather than an active imagination within our hearts and in our heads of what could be going on. So I would ask of you to try to engage your head and your heart in imagination as you're listening to God's word. And then let me just get to it. Okay, John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he appointed the man's eyes, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were you, your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. 
So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do, do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The word of the Lord. So I'm going to invite Mike. Can I have Mike up? So I asked Mike and Tim to lead us in corporate prayer. Specifically, Mike is going to lead us however he is led, but with this, this idea of this inward focus from the text. You know, what, and he'll lead us in that part, but this inward focus, and then Tim is going to lead us with an outward focus of the text. And again, praying is what the church does. Reflecting the word of God back to God in community is what the church does. Even if this kind of feels weird, I don't know how often you guys do this, um, but like this is what we do. This is what we do, is that we pray, we seek God, um, both in thinking of the local community, thinking of the, the ways God would like to bless us and correct us, but also thinking outside of ourselves and thinking about what it means to bless others. So. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for Justin and for his willingness to be here with us this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the way that your word is illuminated to us. And God, we thank you for this passage and for what is inside of this passage for us, God, both looking within the walls as a body and God looking outside of these walls in terms of ministry uh, as well. And Lord, as we look at this this morning, God, we think of the man that you healed. And uh, as Justin said, God, there was obedience there. Lord, there was a calling. There was direction that was provided to him. And there was obedience. Lord, there was a response. Uh, there was an initial response which led to sight. And God, there was further response later on, even whenever he was challenged. But Lord, even in that, he held to the faith that uh, you allowed to grow because of the sight that was gained from that obedience. And Lord, our desire as a body is to be obedient to you. God, to be obedient to your leading, to be obedient 
to your calling and wherever that takes us. And God, to God, not to be tied down by perspectives or um, desires, but God, to be led by your Spirit and Lord, to allow you to direct us in all the things that we do. Uh, and Father, I think of the Pharisees here as well. And um, God, what we see in them is pride. Uh, Lord, pride in feeling like they had everything figured out, pride in uh, in terms of not being open to the truth, Lord, with it. that led to a couple of things. God, it led to spiritual blindness for them, and Father, it also led to uh, a divisiveness between them as well. And God, our desire as a body is not to be spiritually blind. God, not to be bound by perspectives that we maybe hold to, uh, but God aren't uh, aren't buried in your truth, uh, and God, we ask that you would break down the walls, Father, walls that build division for us, and God, walls that fit you in a box. Um, God, so many times we we try to put you in a box because that's a whole lot more comfortable for us, and Lord, you're not in a box. That's <laughs> God by putting you in a box we. Um, we break down who you are, God, because that's not who you are. Father, you are God, and Lord, help us to not try to put you in a box, um, and God, to be responsive to understanding what it is that you want to do in our lives. And God, that there are times that you want to work in a way that we don't necessarily understand or necessarily explain. Um, but God, help us to, whenever you do that, to be obedient, and God, to be responsive. Lord, our desire is to be like this man who says, I was blind and now I see. And Father, just help us as a body, Lord, as individuals, and God, as uh, a corporate unit within Parker Ford Church to be able to claim that truth, to claim that promise, and Father, to be obedient to your calling. It's in your name we pray. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, and then anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Father God, we recognize the fact that there are so many times where we don't see you and we don't see your power. And it's oftentimes because we haven't submitted to your commands. You've called us to step out into the water that the seas can part. You've called us to speak the truth so that it cannot return void. You've called us to step in faith and to believe you and to trust you. You've taught us to invest and to give so that we can see return. You've taught us to testify so that we can see your name glorified. 
And we watch this man go to a pool, and we watch him see your power work when he goes to the pool. We watch him, at the end of the story, testify to the Pharisees that this man must be from God. And because of it, he's kicked out of the synagogue. And you know, that must have been one of the greatest moments of freedom in this guy's life, being beat down by a religious system his whole life. And then he speaks the truth about a man who gives him freedom. And they're like, get out of here. He must have been like, praise Jesus. I'm out. Father God, you set us free and you call us to live in the realm of freedom. And you call us to live in the realm where your work is moving and is out in front of us and is touching lives all around us, God. And we know that there is an open channel, an open opportunity for us to see you move in profound ways. But you call us to step to move our feet, to stretch out our hands, to open our mouth, to open our pocketbooks, to open our hearts, to use our gifts, to engage in those relationships, to speak that truth. You have called us to go. You've called us to engage. You've called us to testify. And so, Father God, we look at this story and we're rebuked by this story and we're grateful for this story. God, and we're, we're thankful for a man who was held back blind, whose eyes were open. And we just want to confess that we are not of those who see. We are of those who are blind. But we are also of those who want to see the same way that this guy saw. And so, God, we ask that you would name for us, for each of us, God, where the places that you tell us to go and wash, where the places where we can testify to your truth. God, we recognize that we have at times been afraid and we haven't stood in faith. We haven't declared who you are. We haven't always spoken the truth when it's available. God, we put that behind us and we just ask that today you would tell us who we should speak to. Today, who we should give to. Today, what act of obedience you call us to. So that that knowledge that's been blessed to be given to us today would result in actions of us trusting you and following you so that we can see and experience you today. God, we thank you and praise you for the gift where you said the work is here while the day lasts. And you said you were the light of the world as long as you walked in the flesh. And now you say that we are the light of the world. And there is a window of time given to us. And we ask God that in that window of time, we would do the work that you have called us to do. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.